0: Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and in today's podcast, I'm thrilled to have Katie Simon, Corporate Vice President at Edwards Life Sciences and General Manager of their Global Critical Care business. Katie has had a fascinating career both at Edwards but also at Medtronic where she was president of their diabetes business. In addition to that, she served on the board of numerous startup companies that are each having a huge impact on their various specialties companies like Inari, Inspire, Tournier. Welcome, Katie.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we have a lot of things to cover today. So I'm really uh, excited to have the opportunity uh, to have you on the podcast. Uh, let's start with Edwards and Critical Care. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that Critical Care is a $700 million business within Edwards Could you give our listeners an overview of critical care and really what the the core of the Edwards offering is?
1: Yeah, so the core initial start of Edwards um, critical care started with the Swan Gans catheter that was actually invented out of Cedar sinai And many people know the kind of the story of that invention was just that, uh, they were sitting on the beach and said, hey, how do I get a good reading of of, a patient's pulmonary artery pressure? And it's really hard to do unless you're inside the heart. And it's really hard to get to that pulmonary artery position and figured out that if you took a, you know, think about how sailboats work, if you blew up a balloon and let it float really through the body like a sailboat, it would land in the pulmonary artery position. And that was invented almost 50 years ago by uh, Jeremy Swans and Willie Gans out of Cedar, Cedar Sinai, that was the beginning of our business, and since then we've really expanded and focused on advanced hemodynamic monitoring, really in patients in the ICU or in high-risk surgeries, whether it's cardiac surgeries or um, high-risk non-cardiac surgeries that may be for patients that you know are very sick and that have surgery greater than three hours. So. Our business grew from kind of the beginning with the Swan Ganz catheters and now we do, you know, all kinds of pressure monitoring technologies, really focused on making sure patients hemodynamics are stable.
0: That's great. I actually didn't know the the history of the Swan gans catheter, so that's fascinating. You know, one one of the things that must be having a huge impact on your business is the current uh, crisis we're facing in COVID. How has that changed your business and and how are you seeing critical of care evolved through this crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. I think for us, we had always assumed um, so much of our business was um, in the ICU. And uh, with, the, with COVID hitting, we've seen it hit in various degrees. So for example, in the UK, um, they realized that they had a, a significant shortage of ICU beds. And so they came through and ordered uh, like 1.2 million DPT or pressure sensors from us to stock up so that they could build out their ICUs. Um, other countries like Germany or the U.S. had adequate ICU beds in different parts of the country of the U.S. We've seen some regional spikes, but overall I think we found in the U.S. that we had enough ICU beds and and Germany they have enough. But then kind of across the rest of Europe, they found significant shortages. So we've seen some spikes in demand related to building ICU capacity. And then we've seen just various spikes in demand like regionally, for example, in New York and New Jersey, of course, we've seen some higher demand there. But on the flip side, probably 50% of our revenues come from high risk surgery. And so with the cancellation of surgeries really across the US and the world, we've seen the kind of downward demand or downward revenues um, for about half the business for the high-risk OR procedures.
0: Ah, interesting. I didn't realize it cut both uh, ways. You know, I think the, the, the building of stockpiles or expanding capacity is an interesting uh, dilemma that I think a lot of companies are, are facing because on the one hand, it's great from the near-term business side. On the other hand, you wonder, you know, what will purchasing look like in the future with these sort of stockpiles? How do you deal with that, or is that is that something that um, you see is um, you know a concern going forward?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, so it's been an interesting journey for us. So a lot of our uh, product is manufactured out of the Dominican Republic. And in the DR, we had a reduction of human, you know, of of human capital in terms of the workers because many of the workers that were over age 60 were no longer able to come to the work. So that reduced our capacity by about 80%. And meanwhile, then we had this spike in demand. So now we're sort of getting back to a steady state where, you know, people are able to come back to work. But it's been a really interesting short-term challenge. And then there's also the concern, as you said, like we've had this surge in demand. So we've had to work double, you know, uh, three shifts and through the weekends to meet kind of these spikes in demand for building capacity. But we all recognize that that's not going to be sustainable and it's going to go back to a normal state afterwards. So mostly we're just hiring temps. And trying to use extra shifts as a way to kind of manage it so that we don't become overcapacitized ourselves, right, permanently.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. know that. I mean, you, you think of the, you know, I think a lot of people think about what's happening on the front lines as they should, but the ripple effect through your business, through your supply chain. Is, uh, it's incredible to th- just think how complex our businesses have become, um, and uh, how little changes in the overall environment can impact the you know the whole supply chain.
1: Yeah, and it's um, it is amazing. Like for supply chain um, in particular, because we've also seen the regulatory bodies, whether it's in Europe or um, in the U.S., being flexible to try to approve products quicker just to kind of provide for the emergency situation. So, you know, for example, we had excess capacity um, of our Asia sensors. And so we were able to quickly get those approved and into Europe um, so that they could actually get to their patients in Europe almost on a temporary basis. So I, you know, I think the one summary of what's happening is it's just very unpredictable. And I think there's some really good permanent changes in terms of, realizing that we can all work together globally better, um, whether it's regulatory bodies, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's, you know, distribution channels, as you're talking about shipping channels, all of that I think is um, all going to be permanently changed. And hopefully some of the changes will be for the better. I really believe that.
0: Yeah. What have you seen anything you can point to in particular, which you think is going to be a change that will persist in the way you do business?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest change is going to be around um, conferences and, you know, professional education for clinicians and also for our salespeople and our internal employees. So I'll give you an example. There's a conference that we have uh, once a year that usually happens here in the month of July, and they decided to go virtual. And typically, there's about 800 live attendees. And instead, when they went virtual, they had over 3,000 attendees um, that went to every session. And so I think that the ability to combine live sessions with virtual sessions and people saying, hey, I'm totally comfortable to go virtually to everything, I think that's going to be a permanent change much for the better and that we're going to be able to train and leverage things more at scale To get information training about new products about new technologies. I think that's going to be a permanent benefit for everybody that you know Whether it's for the clinicians who are trying to get up to speed on things or whether it's for The um, companies or the technologies that are trying to get training out there. I think it's going to be um, much better and easier to get access to people.
0: Yeah, that's a, a welcome change from my standpoint and the ability to deliver so much more more information to more people. I mean, it, I, I agree. I think that's going to be transformative and interesting to think about, you know, how much money a company spend on, say, the exhibit halls and all that stuff. And, and that could be really different, right? You know, you might not have these... Uh, you know huge exhibits yeah, i mean obviously not if it's virtual but it's that's been a focal point for how people have sold their products in the past
1: yeah i think the other example is you know because we have not had access to get into the hospitals for the last several months i mean we literally have our clinicians that are in the icu just have an ipad open with them and we're facetiming with them and telling them which buttons to push, how to help treat their patients. Um, So that's been amazing to see. And we have all kinds of examples where the clinicians are like, hey, I don't know what to do, can you help me? And we just pop up on FaceTime on an iPhone and we're able to help them remotely. And again, I think it's gonna be permanent. I think people are like, wow, this is easy to do. I'm gonna reach out and get help from my suppliers if I can't handle technology or don't really know how to use it correctly. I'm gonna ask more for help remotely, which I just think people are afraid to do before.
0: That's awesome. How have you seen critical care itself evolve during the COVID crisis? Uh, You know, I think there is a huge learning curve in, you know, in each country, unfortunately, probably not, as you say, not enough sharing was done across countries. But in the US, have you seen the way we treat COVID patients evolve in the critical care environment?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's this question of, you know, do you need ventilators or don't you do patients do better if they can survive longer off the ventilators? Um, I'd say the biggest shift overall that we see related to our business is the desire to have uh, the ability to remotely monitor patients. And I think that's going to be uh kind of a mega trend that we're all going to see so fda just issued guidance about you know five days ago saying that they will um approve COVID 19 dedicated remote monitoring technology so what that means for i think everyone that does whether it's monitoring ventilators any products that are used in an icu environment or really any environment whether you're in the er or even in regular hospital rooms because of the desire to reduce the spread of the infection, um, the regulatory bodies and all, all the hospitals in general want to be able to remotely monitor patients without having to touch them. And so I think we're going to see more things that are able to be uh, monitored on iPhones or through, you know, central screens or central um. ICU departments or at the nursing stations. Anything that's going to move in that direction, I think, is going to um, be needed big time as we um, all prepare for the re- re- remains of this pandemic as well as any future ones. And so I think remote monitoring is one big megatrend mega that we're focused on. So trying to make sure that we can be, you know, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi enabled and get all of our data up to the cloud and down onto our clinicians phones for as many patients as possible, that's really a big investment shift that we're going to head towards um, as a result of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting in moments like these, you know, historically, we've always felt that changes in workflow were really the hardest things to bring to doctors. And yet a crisis like this, and the use of technology in different ways, you know, kind of allows you to accelerate that change in workflow where, you know, where it really helps. Are you seeing just more receptivity to different ways of doing things?
1: Yeah, I want to say, you know, we had a a quote, I think it's the Oxner Clinic or something that was um, showing that if you looked at the first two months of 2020, they had had um, 300, you know, remote patient visits, and in the last three months, um, say, till the end of the June here, so in the second quarter of 2020, they had had over 8,000 remote patient visits. So um, definitely, um, you know, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. So I think all these hospitals and clinicians are trying to figure out how do I shift my own business model to um, to be able to enable this remote you know direction? Because patients don't want to be seen live. And hospitals were never really focused on going remote, but I think now they're even have to do, having to do regular everyday visits with their patients remote and trying to set up that infrastructure and be prepared to get that to happen, I think is um, is gonna be important for everybody.
0: Right, right. And one of the challenges of course, is that you know, the da- there's so much data that uh, can be transmitted to a clinician and how do you transmit that data in such a way that it's actionable uh and that they're not spending you know time just reading through the raw data and i guess ai can play a role here i'm curious as to how you're seeing that at edwards the role of ai the role of sort of presenting information in its most clinically actionable form
1: yeah that's a great question jeff so when you think about artificial intelligence and kind of how does it actually um truly work and truly benefit healthcare without overwhelming the clinicians with too much information. Um, So in Edwards critical care, as an example, we developed a new technology called the hypotension prediction index, which is a lot of words. So it's easier to just say HPI. But what it really does is it predicts um, if a patient is going to go below a mean arterial blood pressure of 65, which is a very dangerously low level for the patient. And oftentimes, whether you're in the ICU or whether you're in um, a high risk surgical situation, even if you have um, one minute of hypotension of meaning a mean arterial pressure below 65, it can have significant increase in comorbidities and even in downstream um, myocardial infarction or heart attack risk. And so um, we developed this technology by first of all, having to build a database Took us about seven years to pull together all the data, um, uh, all the way down to the waveform level. So each individual heartbeat, including the heart pressure of a patient, gives our computers approximately 2 million signals. So you imagine, you know, if one heartbeat can give 2 million signals, um, then we're able to use artificial intelligence with seven years of data with over um, 300 million heartbeats, if that makes sense. And um, we were able to develop then an ability to predict hypotension, which is phenomenal and could really help clinicians, but then we had to try to get it through FDA. And um, for FDA, this is a totally new area, and so even though it was a de novo 510K, which in theory should take six months, it took us about 18 months to get it through FDA because we had to kind of help train their experts on how it worked, what were we focused on, how did our Artificial intelligence actually work and get them comfortable with the risk benefit for the technology. Um, But then now that it's through FDA, it's very exciting. We're starting to do some, you know, larger scale clinical studies to prove the benefit clinically that it can happen that it can have on patients. Um, But, you know, back to your point about how slow clinicians are to adopt new technology, especially in the ICU. Where you know these are life or death situations and they get very used to relying on what they were trained on. Um, I think it's going to take us a while before we see a significant adoption uh, because we almost have to convince each hospital and each clinician kind of one, uh, one at a time. About the benefit that it can have to them, but um, personally, you know, at Edwards, we are taking that experience of HPI And starting to build a lot of other um, artificial intelligence indications looking at other areas like, you know, how do we close the loop so that we could actually make recommendations on a closed loop system. um, On how much fluid a patient needs to stay stable so we can take that um, stress out of the clinicians lives and actually automate that for them using AI. Um, We're looking at pain indexes. Can we actually predict pain for patients on an in an objective way using all the data that we have so we're very bullish on AI, um, but I think the development, you know, let's say it takes less time in the future to get the data sets built. So instead of seven years, it might take two years. Actually building the algorithm only takes a few months. Getting it through FDA and then getting clinicians to adopt it and see the value of it, I think is where the hard and heavy lifting is. Uh, but I really think it's going to be the future and that we're gonna be able to transform care and patient care will be much improved um, over time with artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, I I mean, just the both the thrill of our jobs and also the bane of our existence can be uh, how complex it is to actually bring a product to market. And you mentioned FDA, uh, you know, the other question I have is, you know, how do you how do you get paid for these types of solutions? And I'm curious as to how you're seeing insurers react uh, to these types of algorithms and how easy is it to actually get paid for these types of indexes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So in, in the case of monitoring, it's actually reimbursed as part of the overall DRG system. So for example, if you have a high risk surgery, there's gonna be an overall DRG reimbursement for the surgical procedure itself. So then the hospital has a motivation to try to um, reduce the length of stay for the patient and kind of um, you know, get them up and running and out of the hospital quicker. And so we um, really sell into that, right? And so for our technologies, we will sell the software as a service. So we'll say, okay, if you use HPI, for example, you're going to get your patients up and out of the hospital better, and then they will have less likelihood of returning in 30 days, where hospitals sometimes now will get in effect taxed if if a patient comes back within 30 days. And then the other thing that we're doing specifically, so one is we sell the software Um, Second is we sell um, monitors that are AI enabled or artificial intelligence enabled and we're finding that hospitals will pay more for capital that they realize is going to be AI enabled in the future. And then um, the third piece is on the disposables. We um, have kind of what you would call classic disposables, which are the ones that do not um, have the ability to do predictive intelligence. And then we have our IQ line of disposables and we charge, call it, you know, 20% more for the IQ disposables. And so um, that's the way that we're kind of monetizing, if you will, the new technology. And it's a matter of you've really got to have these believers in the hospital for them to want to pay up for it, which means we've got to prove it to them in their environment that it really works and, and improves patient care so that they can have DRG savings, if you will, on their side.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great. It sounds like you have multiple avenues there. And from a venture perspective, something we've always worried about or been more cautious in the ICU critical care setting is, you know, how long these adoption cycles can take. And there seems to be a lot of different stakeholders. Uh, each hospital can have kind of their own uh, approach. I'm curious what you think of that or what, it, you know, how you would counsel a venture capitalist like me is to getting into these you know startups that are focused on critical care am I right in in those assumptions or actually am I missing kind of uh, uh, what you know more of the opportunity is there?
1: Yeah um, so first of all you're absolutely correct that in the critical care environment it's very, very slow to change and that you know I say that you know having experience in uh, other areas of um, of medicine, And so they're very slow to change. And I think the advantage that we have as Edwards is that since we have a very high leading position and the swan GANS catheter in the ICU is basically like the Kleenex, right? They're always gonna reach for a swan. And so we're sort of already there. And then they trust us and we're able to then roll out newer technologies that way with them. But as new startups trying to get into the ICU, it's very difficult and it's gotta be something that has a very compelling value proposition. The second thing that we've learned in the ICU environment is that a lot of times um, you've got to go to the CEO level of the hospitals because they're the ones that are really kind of bearing the cost of the ICU. And so we've got a great partnership with HCA, for example. And if we um, kind of convince the chief medical officer at HCA that we believe something will matter in their ICU environment like HPI. Um, and their chief medical officer buys in, then, then it's really almost ed- um, an edict that they will then roll through all their hospitals. So critical care is a little bit different in that you've really got to do top-down, bottoms-up approach and um, more, than other, more than other technologies where each clinician can just make their own decision.
0: Do you see the same um, influence of uh, key opinion leaders in the critical care world uh, as you see in like, You know, interventional cardiology, or I don't know how it was in diabetes when you were there. But uh, are there sort of a group of people that also help spread the gospel of new technologies, or is it more fragmented?
1: I would say it's more fragmented. Um, I think in any area, whether it's you know interventional cardiology, you know cardiac surgery, or diabetes, there's always typically probably twenty top KOLs, um, key opinion leaders that you want to get to know. And they're the ones that will sway most the opinion. And the same is true in critical care. There's definitely, you know, about 20, call it the very famous people that have um, very significant opinions um, that can really sway care. But, um, but it's much more fragmented because there's so many clinicians. I think in the ICU, one of the other big differences is that you can have um, literally, you um, hundreds in within one hospital you might have you think okay i've gotten to know 20 to 30 and they are really driving it but we had one guy who like he's a top kol very famous um he was at his hospital and he was the head of anesthesiology totally believed in the technology and then at the end we asked him how many people he supervised and if you include um certified certified nurse anesthetists, it's about three to four hundred people And only 70 had adopted the technology. Mm -hmm. So even your own hospital KOL um, believes in something. It's just hard to get it all the way through, especially the nurse anesthetists that kind of drive a lot of things um, in the ICU Mm -hmm. ring area
0: yeah okay amazing that's amazing um so so as we uh it seems like covid is gonna last a while in this country we i don't think uh culturally for whatever reason we seem to be able to maintain uh some of the things that will uh um bring this under control. I'm curious how you see that do you think do you see this as something is lasting a while at least until there's a vaccine um and and what how does what's the a prediction in terms of the impact on the Edwards business and then maybe on a related note to that, you know, what, as elective procedures and you mentioned, you know, surgical procedures being uh, uh, down, it's certainly impacting the health of hospitals and their capital budgets. So how, how do you deal with that as a as a business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest um, things, and we all saw this back in you know the two thousand eight, two thousand nine timeframe. But hospitals live really in two areas. One is many of the nonprofit hospitals really live on their endowments, and so when the financial markets are very unpredictable, kind of up and down, then the hospitals really struggle because that kind of endowment income, if you will, um, tightens all of their budgets and then the for-profit hospitals obviously have lost so many of the electrode procedures this year and they're they're predicting we saw an lek survey that said that most 100 hospital ceos predict that their capital budgets are going to be down about 50 percent and their um kind of elective procedures they kind of estimate getting back to about 85 to 90 percent as we get into um 2021 and the to the end of 2021 so I think the short answer is it's just so unpredictable right now. I mean, we see parts of the world and parts of the country that have, you know, gone back to 90% of former levels. And then we see other parts that are still at the, you know, 60%. And so, I mean, I wish I knew, Jeff, all of us do, right? It's just such an unpredictable time. We're pretty hopeful and optimistic that the world's going to somehow get back to some form of, form of normal, um, but it's hard to know. Who knows?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is we we see this, you know, it's it really is is a global uh, global pandemic. So as you know, one region of the world gets it under control, seemingly, or one region of the U.S., there's another region where there's a, you know, a real surge in the virus. So uh, for you guys uh, being a a global business, it must be fascinating, just fascinating and terrible at the same time. Uh, to see this spreading uh, region after region.
1: Mm -hmm. And you also see just like, you know, patients that are afraid to go to the hospital. So just even emergency room visits are down so much. People are just waiting too long to go to the ED. And then when they get there, they're having to go straight up to the ICU as opposed to coming in much earlier when they could have been helped. So I hope... And also reverses because that's just not good for anybody and not good for those
0: patients. Either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the, some of the critical surgeries that are being put off, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm amazed when you think about, you know, heart failure and things that to me seem like pretty serious conditions that are viewed as elective. Uh, you know, in terms of the procedures that are being done, it's, uh, you know, I think ultimately we're going to really suffer if these patients don't get in the hospital. But uh, mm-hmm. fascinating. Well, that's that's really interesting. I want to uh, get to some of the other um, uh, topics uh, we're going to cover here. And, and one of them, I mean, uh, before Edwards, you were president of Medtronic uh, Diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? I mean, I'm amazed at the evolution in care in diabetes um, that's that's taken place and, and interested to hear your thoughts on Medtronic's role in that. But also, you know, and I know it's been a few years since you've been in it. Um, but maybe to the extent you've you've kept uh, in touch there, what you see evolving or happening in the diabetes world?
1: Yeah. So first of all, um, you know, Medtronic Diabetes was originally an acquisition of Medtronic Mini Med, which was an L. Man company yeah. um, here in the in the Los Angeles area. Um, The thing that was great about being in diabetes is um, you're largely focused um, on type one patients, which is a very difficult and challenging disease when your pancreas essentially shuts down and it's really life or death if you get your insulin doses. So the initial Medtronic Diabetes company was focused on um, insulin pumps for people with type one diabetes and then it expanded to um, create a continuous glucose monitor that was then a closed loop system in order to get the glucose reading, so that they could automatically make recommendations to patients about delivering doses of insulin for um, for mostly children with diabetes. And so the thing that I loved about running the diabetes business is. Um, Uh, There were 400,000 patients, you know, probably more like 600,000 by the time you think about it today, that um, wear the insulin pumps, and they really depend on the technology 24-7. So you've got to have super high quality. You're dealing with insulin, which is a lethal drug, so you've got to make sure that it's highly accurate, right? And then adding on the continuous glucose monitoring um, to close the loop was just really challenging and, uh, and fun, you know, partnering with FDA to develop studies in order to close the loop and uh, prove that the technology could work and really improve care for patients. The other thing that's fun about working with type 1 diabetes is that the average age of diagnosis is 13, and so you're dealing with a much younger mm. patient population than we typically see in med tech, right, which typically yeah. is more like medical age. And so just getting to be around kids, see their energy, their optimism, and just their desire for any improvements in technology because they live with this disease 24-7, you know, from age 13 for the rest of their lives, right? Yeah. So um, the way I've seen the business and the, the, the industry evolve is, you know, every year there's a certain subset of patients that are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So I'll just first talk about the type 1 side of the market. And so um, in the case of Medtronic, they have a very high market share, largely because they have such a high installed base. And so when you think about it, getting into the diabetes um, insulin pump market in particular, you're really only going after sort of the market share, if you will, of the newly diagnosed patients each year. You're not really breaking into kind of the existing installed base of all those patients that are out there. So while the market might appear to be, you know, almost $2 billion, You're really only competing each year for a couple hundred million dollar market and you're trying to get your market share of that piece of the market, which are the newly diagnosed patients. And the reason for that is that the um, likelihood that you will re up with the existing pump that you already have so um, patients are able to get a new pump every four years through reimbursement. And so every four years, they can go out and look for a new pump, but um, 95% of the time, they select the pump that they're already on. So they'll just get the next generation of that pump. And so that's what makes that kind of pump side of the market really interesting. Yeah. On the CGM side, it was initially um, designed, continuous glucose monitoring was initially focused on type 1 patients, right, Um, to try to help um, with insulin dosing. But then it was like, well, how do we get into the type 2 population, which is huge, as we all know, there's large, large numbers of patients that have type 2 diabetes, and then how do we get to improve their care, right? And so now you're seeing, you know, whether it's Abbott Libre or Dexcom or even Medtronic, um, trying to move those technologies over to the type 2 population and starting to see some real success with that. Um, Type two patients because they don't really need um, daily dosing of insulin the pumps don't matter to them as much. It's really about the CGM. So I think the CGM um, pump uh, the CGM market is quite attractive. And the easier and easier to use it is, the more likely patients will use it. Because if you have type 2 diabetes, typically you only need to take your blood sugars once a day. But if you can get a trend and see how eating affected you and how everything affects you, it's going to help you to pay more attention to how you take care of yourself as a type 2 patient. And so the you know easy to use PGM devices like Abbott Libre, I think are going to continue to take off like crazy. And I would really think that's an attractive area.
0: Yeah. Well, and just to look at the stock price of Dexcom, I remember a few years ago, it was under a hundred and I'm kicking myself for not having <laughs> put some money in there, but it's really unbelievable. And you talk to people who, you know, patients who use the CGM and it really is, you know, life changing to try and get a grip on the disease. And certainly as you point out with the pumps, it's, uh, it's life-altering. I hadn't really considered the, you know, the whole install base argument. And you think about how hard it is for many startups to break into this field. What you say makes a lot of sense because, one, it takes a lot of money for any you know, venture-backed company. And the rate of failure of those companies, I have to believe, has been quite high.
1: Yeah. I mean, we used to say you know, that there was a graveyard of approximately 50 um, companies that had tried to enter the pump market Um, On CGM, you're going to have the exact same thing happen, right, where Dexcom and Abbott Libre have high installed bases at this point, and so does Medtronic on the Type 1 side for sure. So it's hard, again, because whatever continuous glucose monitor you started on, you're going to stick with because it takes a long time to get used to any technology. It's almost like your iPhone, right? I'm an iPhone user. I'm not going to switch to Samsung. It's the same type of thing. And um, so you've got to look at it as high install base, even for CGM. And then you're really competing just for those new users every year.
0: What do you think, um, you know, and I know you're, you've been away from the field, so maybe this is an unfair question, but what, what do you see as sort of the next big wave of innovation in diabetes? Uh, anything come to mind as, as an area of, that's not been solved?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, it still comes down to can you not actually have to prick the finger because even all the CGM devices, you know, to the extent that you're still having to put some device on yourself and that kind of finger prick or put it on your body, um, that would be amazing. So there's always been the holy grail to try to figure out how to, you know, estimate glucose levels without having to, prick, you know, actually puncture the skin. Yeah. So that would be great if all that. Um, And then I think the other one is this concept of automated pens. So if you think about, you know, so many of diabetes um, drugs, whether it's insulin or some of the other, um, you know, milder ones that are used for type two patients are used by injection. And so trying to get a pen that is, you know, somehow can sense the glucose levels or can kind of combine, essentially uh, become an insulin pump, but be an automated pen that's simple and easy to use that sort of solves a lot of that usage problem. So because, you know, insulin pumps cost like $4,000 and, you know, a nice automated pen that could work would, you know, solve a lot of those problems. So there's some startups going after that. And I really hope someday they solve those problems for patients.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you you are a leader in your own right in, in the field at, at Edwards and you know at Medtronic, you know, you're involved in various um organizations as well. And and you've, you know, as you've grown up in the business, you've you've also been surrounded with some pretty, you know, noteworthy leaders. I mean, your current CEO at Edwards uh, being probably foremost among them. I'm curious, you know, who which people have had you know, really, the biggest impacts on you, and and what have you, you know, learned from some of the people you you've been around over the course of of your career in terms of leadership style.
1: Um, well, that's great. I mean, I've had a chance to report to you know four um, four CEOs at Medtronic, and then um, you know, so that was Bill George, Art Collins, Bill Hawkins, and then Omar Ishraq. And then now I've been reporting to Mike for the last five years um, at Edwards and um, First of all, they all are great leaders in their own right. And it takes a a lot of uh, great leadership to become CEO of either Medtronic or um, Edwards. So just, I personally am really grateful for the chance that I've had to work with all these um, different leaders. Um, I think, you know, for me, uh, Bill George was the first CEO that I worked with. And I was very early in my career, just out of business school and also just before business school. And then he ended up um, retiring from Medtronic and then went and taught at Harvard Business School for, um, you know, the last 10 to 15 years. So he's just an amazing kind of visionary guy. Like he always inspired us. He was always doing strap plans that were like 10 years out, telling us how the world was going to Change I remember doing a you know a strap plan with him in the year two thousand that was called vision twenty ten and so many of the things that he you know predicted about the future really ended up happening so he spent a lot of time as a leader just really driving and focusing on that long term future and and now figuring that out and then you know being right about some things like you know he predicted the tachycardia business and the whole heart failure side for pacemakers and ICDs was going to be huge and definitely turned out to be that way and he invested in that direction and that really drove a lot of those successes in my first 10 years at Medtronic where we grew 15% on the top and bottom line every year for 10 years, which is really hard to do. Um, you know, then you kind of get to the, you know, Mike Masalem who's been CEO of Edwards for, you know, coming up on 20 years here and, um, you know, to be someone who was born and raised in Baxter as Mike was and then spin out on and create your own company with Edwards and then you know, consistently grow it into um, the amazing company it is today. And having really, it was initially a cardiovascular surgical valve company, and he made that pivot to acquire PVT and then, um, you know, go all the way all in, if you will, for transcatheter valves to disrupt his own technology and his own business. Um, you know, Mike Masson's just an amazing, phenomenal leader. So, um, so I've just. know i could just say i'm really blessed to have worked with some great guys and i think the key for each of them is um i what i've learned probably most from mike is mike is just really cares a lot about people and then he really spends a lot of time on two key areas one is the strategy so looking out five and ten years and then making sure that we have some good growth platforms as he looks out those five and ten years and then second um he spends hours and hours on talent development reviews talking about our people making sure we have the right people in the right jobs um, is a really big area of focus for him and then part of that is really on the culture and making sure that edwards has the culture that is focused on the patient and focused on innovation and i kind of think that all companies really try to do that um but you know mike has done it better than anyone i've ever seen and he spends so much time personally really making sure that our culture is a positive one so that people can grow and thrive here and I just admire that a ton and I've learned a ton from that.
0: Yeah uh, that's that's terrific to hear I mean I'm curious how you know particularly as companies get as big as Edwards is how you really do that I'm curious in your business and critical care you know how do you infuse uh, you know the culture into the business what are some of the what are some of the things or tips or, you know, things you could share with our listeners as far as your leadership style and how you bring that culture into the business?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, for me personally, um, I really like to have fun and for me um, working in med tech as we all do, um it's fun i love what i do and so i think one of the things that i focus on personally and that i've seen these you know great leaders do is you know if you emanate that um positive attitude and the fact that you truly love what you do and you really are focused on um doing the right thing for patients people are going to get that off you and they're going to see that and they're going to feel it and that's going to kind of emanate into your culture so that's one Uh, but i think the other thing is um I spend a lot of time creating fun events. I think one of the things that's important is we all work so hard with our lives and spend so much of our time at work just to have fun. So we do a big um, fall festival, Halloween party, call it, where everybody wears costumes and they get to bring their children and they trick or treat around the office. Um, we have great you know, beach parties. We really try to spend a lot of time getting to know each other beyond just the work. And I think that's one of the most important things to have people feel like they can bring their whole selves to work and that by spending time together outside of work and then having fun together. that that really kind of builds that trust and that feeling that I can thrive here and I can be myself here and that takes a lot of time right I could say I don't always um, feel like going and and having all of these um, outside events to spend time getting to know people, but it's so important to do and you just as a leader it's one of the most important things that i can spend my time on is spending time just building trust and getting to know people so i think those are probably the big ones
0: yeah i'm sure it pays huge dividends and it you know it strikes me because the company that we both have the good fortune to be on the board of inari medical a ceo is bill hoffman and you know something bill always is saying is nobody is having more fun than uh, the people at inari and that that culture of fun you know, we're lucky to be in a business where you have a huge impact on people and to be able to have fun as well is amazing. And, and you know, I mentioned Inari because you've been Im- involved there. You've been involved at Inspire and Tournier. So you, you've also had the view of CEOs at emerging companies. And I'm curious as to how that's impacted your style. Um, you know, has it impacted your style uh, seeing, you know, these smaller more emerging companies and what you do you know running a you know a much larger entity
1: yeah i think that um first of all the fun thing about working in smaller you know startup environments is you can be really singularly focused and you've got to you have to do that or you might you know get distracted and fail right so that's a benefit in um, startup land that you can stay so focused and then creating a culture like you said at an re You know this concept of um, the technology really treats clots for deep vein thrombosis or uh, pulmonary embolism and so the culture is saying that all the people that work there are clot warriors and that's just fantastic right so to the extent that you can help people to connect what they're doing to something that that um, is fun and say okay we're clot warriors so everything we do is kind of on that baseline discussion I think that um, I believe that in the larger companies. So within Edwards, for example, I really try to create a different culture in critical care so that you stay small and you still stay feeling like a family. And then even within critical care. We have certain product lines that are dedicated to the ICU versus the OR. And so we try to create like family cultures or subcultures within that dedicated to those specific technologies. And then you just keep telling those patient success stories where you're, you're, you're having an impact so that people feel connected to that. And they get out of bed every morning passionate that they're gonna save a life or they're gonna change a life or they're gonna improve a life. And I think um, continuing to take the time to learn the patient stories and tell them and connect people to them is, um, is one of the keys. So whether you're at a startup or whether you're at a big company, the key is to stay in smaller environments where you're close, you feel like a family, and that work feels like a family that's making a difference in the world together. I mean, I think that's the success, the way to success, whether you're small or large.
0: Yeah. So true. Uh, it's really, um, amazing. I mean, always, you know, a little easier when you, when you are having such a big impact on patients' lives, whether it's at critical care or Medtronic diabetes or Inari, but, you know, even beyond that, uh, you know, just the, the way that, uh, you and, uh, you know people like bill hoffman are able to bring that that culture of um of making a difference and having fun while they do it is uh you know really um uh, makes it all work so that's really interesting and i'm curious you know, maybe um moving to the last thing i wanted to cover with you is really being a woman in a fairly male dominated um industry um I'm curious uh, really two questions for you. One is what is, what sort of advice do you have to other, you know, young women moving up through the ranks and, you know, taking on leadership roles and then also advice to, you know, the men in the industry and, and how we, uh, you know, maybe how we should, uh, perceive things or our, adjust our, you know, lens. Um, I'm just curious to some of the experiences you've had being a woman growing into, you know, uh, the different leadership roles that you've had and, and some of the challenges and what you've learned and what you can share.
1: Yeah thanks a lot Jeff for the question so um, you know as you said uh, med tech and just our industry in general is highly um, kind of male-dominated and I think a lot of the source of that is that so much of it comes from engineering and so much of engineering schools have historically been more male-dominated and so that means the feeder pool of our talent tends to be, you know, coming out of a male-dominated background. Um, but, you know, having said that, I would say my own personal story, you know, when I started in um, business and in the industry, I was raised in a family with, um, you know, I was sort of the uh, the one girl among three brothers, and so I just I never noticed that I was the only woman in the room the majority of the time. And I think um, and it wasn't until I got into a very senior role at Medtronic, honestly, where um, Omar Ishraq had started as our new CEO and he asked me to lead the women's effort. And I said to him, I go, I'm the wrong person to do that because I've never really thought of myself as a woman or as any different than any of the guys. I just am sort of like one of the guys, right? Yeah. And um, uh, but anyway, he really pushed me and said, No, I want you to lead this. I want you to um to focus on trying to help women coming a lot a lot up through the ranks behind you. And so it was the first time that I did a lot of research on what is different in women's styles versus men's styles, and you know, how was that hindering some of the women that were coming up the ranks within Medtronic and then within the industry, right? And um what I realized is that I had been um I guess I, I've always been different in the sense that I wasn't afraid and I was highly, highly competitive because I was always playing games and you know trying to beat my brothers all the time. And so one of the big gaps I think we see is that for women, they will typically, and all the studies show this, that women will typically not have as much confidence and they will think that they have to be overqualified before they will apply for a position. And very often men who are, you know, less qualified or let's say 70% qualified, they will apply for the position and try to make the leap. So, the way I think about it is a woman will often be 120% qualified for a role before she would apply for it. And a man might be 70% before they apply for it. So, what can happen then is um, it just means that a lot of times women are just not um, trying to get the higher risk roles. And therefore, they're not getting the advancement. So my advice to everybody is, you know, being aware of that now myself in, um, you know, I needed to learn that too. What I do is I look around in my, you know, sphere of influence and I say, if I see a woman who's 70% qualified for a role, I tap her on the shoulder and say, you need to apply for this position. Generally, she'll tell me I'm not ready. I wanted to rotate for a few more years so I could get more confident, more experienced. And I tell her, that's ridiculous, you're fine, I want you to apply, and I will have your back if you get the job. And um, whereas the men will apply, and a lot of times they'll be, maybe there might be a gap, and so when you interview with them, you're like, hey, great job applying, you know, maybe next time it's gonna be great for you, right? So I think as leaders, what we've gotta do is make take that time to look around and try to encourage the women to apply because they just don't do it. And it, you know, and my conversations with them are, what are you afraid of? You know, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And for some reason, that seems to be a little bit of a gap that I see oftentimes um, with um, with women. So at Edwards, when I got there, I initially um, immediately said, "Hey, how can I help? How can we start some um, some um, initiatives?" And we went from I think two hundred women that were involved in the Edwards um, Women program to now we have over twenty seven hundred. And we have a great training program called Amplify. And Amplify is focused on amplifying, um, you know, skills for, doesn't mean it matter if it's men or women, but we largely um, try to focus these programs towards women. And mostly they're helping them with presentation skills, confidence, and really realizing that, hey, they've got to raise their hand and try for taking some of the risks that they otherwise might not do. So I don't know if that's a long-winded answer, Jeff, but that's uh, that's sort of my view at this point. Yeah. Um, we've seen great successes with our Amplify program. I have women emailing me all the time saying, thank you for pushing me. I'm now a vice president because you challenged me and told me that I had to go for it, right? So, um, yeah. so that's what I try, I try to spend my time now. And as I look back on myself, I'm amazed. I just never was afraid. I don't know why, but I attributed it to my brothers mostly for beating me up my whole childhood.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good. I I hope they, I hope they're, they're, uh, they realize what an impact they had, but that's really, uh, (laughs) really great. Um, And what advice would you have to, you know, people like me or men in the industry and, and how, you know, how can we, you know, help? I mean, I think first, of course, recognizing the value of diversity is step one, but maybe beyond that, what would you say say to guys like me?
1: Um, You know, I think, as I said, I would try to tap um, people on the shoulder, and then I would really try to listen, you know, like go out of your way to, if you see a high potential, diverse candidate, regardless of what, what their differences might be, um just tap them on the shoulder and meet with them and listen and try to understand if there's any way that you can help or be a sponsor um, for them and just the more that all of us listen and become aware of the journeys that so many people have um are on i think the more that we're able to help them and so you know that's what i try to do a lot now is just listen and then you know challenge these folks and say okay well maybe that was your experience but you know you're great. So what are you going to do to you know jump in and challenge our uh, you know challenge people to actually take risks? And I yeah. think that's the second thing to do after you listen is challenge them. And then, as leaders, take a risk on them yourself and maybe put them in some jobs that you might not have otherwise you know been willing to do just because you weren't sure they were going to be one hundred percent successful. And I think that's hard in venture because you know you have so much money riding on it, you only want to get the best people. But sometimes if you take a risk on people, they're way better because they're going to be all in to win for you.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, it, you know, it's funny. I mean, you you can fall into this. It's very easy to fall into this. Uh, I don't want to say it's a trap, but it, it's, um, you know, your own networks and your own, you know, your own sort of, com- you know, what fits in your comfort zone and not broaden out from that. and. And you you miss people who really can add a very different perspective, and uh, and so I think that's one thing that I take away is you know broaden the pools that you search for candidates in, and you might be surprised that um, you know you know who you find in these pools that are really different than what you would have found otherwise.
1: Yeah, and can I just add? There's a statistics I read, and we're trying to tr- implement this. Um, so Harvard Business Review just issued a study that said that. If you have a slate of candidates where you have one diverse candidate and then you know the rest of the candidates are non-diverse, the chances of you hiring the diverse candidate are something like less than 5%. But if you have more than one diverse candidate on the slate, it goes up by like 5X. And so we've always had this sort of thought, well, if I have one diverse candidate, then I'm doing a good job, right? But now we're trying to rethink it and say, no, that probably doesn't help. You have to have two. And so anyway, that was really interesting new study that just came out that I think has got to challenge all of our thinking about that. It's to your point, right? If I've got, you know, two or three people I work with and then I force myself to get a diverse candidate, they, they're more like an outlier. They're not really kind of in the pool, if you will. It's not really a pool. But if you have a couple candidates, you're gonna actually um, have a better pool that you might actually pick one of them, right? Yeah. And then challenge headhunters because what you just described exist in headhunters as well right they want to get paid so they're going to bring you the people that they know you know or that they know and they're not going to force themselves to bring really great diverse candidates and so we also are challenging our headhunters now to say we want two candidates and they'll go but they don't exist we can't find them but that's not true they can be found It just takes makes everybody work a little bit harder
0: exactly oh, that's really a great perspective well katie this has been really a fascinating conversation i loved it and i can't thank you enough for joining us on uh on this episode of the podcast you're making a tremendous impact and i just want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences
1: well thanks a lot jeff it was my pleasure